Well, good morning. My name is Chris Majeski. I'm one of the pastors here. I uh, want to welcome you to ACC. Uh, we're so glad you're here with us, whether you're in person or you're online. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, one uh, uh, other quick uh, announcement here I want to make before, before we get into the sermon is, uh, if you were here last week, uh, you, you may, you've heard the announcement that, uh, that Pastor Mike, our connection pastor, uh, Mike Stralo is moving on to a new opportunity. Um, and so sort of he's moving on. He's, he's no longer going to be full-time here. He's moving to a new full-time position, but he's going to remain part-time staff here at ACC. We're grateful for that. We love Mike. He's been such a great addition to the team. Um, and so we are officially marking the end of his full-time status as a staff member today and celebrating him. Um, and then, uh, so we're doing that with some, some refreshments in the lobby afterwards. Uh, you may have saw those on your way in and wondered what that was about, or maybe you went and visited already. Uh, but after the service, Mike and his wife, Kelia, will be there. We encourage you to go out, spend some time with them, grab some refreshments, thank them for, for their service, uh, and, and say, see you next week, because they're still around here. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's just a way to honor him and celebrate him. So uh, hope you'll do that. Um, all right, so we are uh, in this series on John. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. Um, as, as, uh, as we look today at chapter 4, I, I wanted to share a couple uh, story with you, something that, that, uh, that, that connects with our passage, but something I was, I was thinking of this week. And uh, I was thinking, I think because winter is finally slowly releasing its grip on us, and there's some nicer weather, although this morning isn't so great, uh, but I started to think about vacation. I started to think about warm weather and going places and, and visiting family and, and doing fun things with, with our kids when they're out of school, that kind of stuff, family vacation. Uh, and I started remembering some of the trips that we took. Uh, and in this last, this last summer, we took a, a long road trip. We went to Florida to visit my, my parents. They're both uh, re- retired and down there now. But, um, uh, and so we went to visit them, and, and then we had this long trip back, and there was nothing like coming home. It was an excellent trip. We had so much fun. But when we got home, it was like, Oh, I can finally breathe again. Get out of this car, be in my own bed. Even though it was great to be with family, it's, it's so good to come home. Can you relate to this idea of traveling? And then when you get back, there's just nothing like coming home where you can finally just rest and relax uh, like, you can, like you can nowhere else. Uh, also connect to this idea, I was just gone this past weekend, and I had that a little bit of t- a little taste of that. Even though I wasn't at home, I was with people that I know and love, people who know me very well and that I can be entirely myself with, and I felt at home there. Even though I wasn't in my home and had that sense of peace and calm and safety, I had it with the people I was with. So can you relate to that idea of there's certain places that you feel safe and secure and at home, and there's certain people with whom you feel safe and secure and at home? It's a longing that all of us have in our heart, this, this, this longing to be safe and secure, to be known and loved. And we have this story in John chapter 4 of a woman who has this same longing, and her life is a mess, and there's so much pain And Jesus meets her in that place. So let's read John chapter 4 and see what God God has for us this morning. So John chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 26. I'm preaching on this part of the the story this week. And then Pastor Mike will be preaching next week on the second part of it. All right, so here we go. uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus knew, the Pharisees had heard, Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them. His disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through, to, he had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. 
Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. She was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If only you knew the gift, of, the gift God has for you and who are you speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman said. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship when we Samaritans claim it is here in Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, but while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning and this place that we can gather as your people to worship you. And we've done that beautifully through singing songs. And we've done that through the giving of, of our offerings. And we do it now as we look to your word. Would you speak to us, Lord? Would you help us to understand what Jesus had for this woman and what you want to offer us? We pray you'd open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got this story here of Jesus interacting with this woman at the well. Uh, probably a, a very familiar story with men, for many of you, uh, but, but here's some, some things that are going on here. We see it starts, it tells us that Jesus was, uh, was baptizing and making more disciples than John, although it's clear to tell us that Jesus didn't actually baptize people, it was his disciples who did. Uh, but remember, John the Baptist said he would need to decrease and Jesus would increase. And Jesus, is, this movement is growing, and it's gaining the attention of the religious leaders uh, in Jerusalem. And, and, and they are unhappy with it. They, they were unhappy with John, and now they're, this is, movement's growing, and they're unhappy with Jesus. And so he, he's leaving to get away from that, that pressure, that heat. There will be a time when he returns to it, when he comes back uh, for, for, uh, for, for the, the cross. Uh, but right now, it's not that time. He has more ministry to do and, and work that God has placed before him. And so he's leaving that, that place, uh, that place of this hotbed of tension. And he goes through Samaria, uh, signaling to us that it was, uh, they, they were getting away quickly. Because most 
Jews would have avoided this. They would have taken the long way around they, instead of just going straight north. And that's what he does. He chooses to go straight north. And there he interacts uh, at, at this, this, this very significant place for the, for, for the Jewish people at this time, Jacob's well. This well that was this property that, that uh, Jacob had and he gave to his son J- uh, Joseph. And so here's this well, this, this significant well, this significant place, and he stops there for water. And at about midday, midday, this woman comes to the well. Significant that this woman is alone in that midday. Jesus interacts with her. He asks her for a drink, uh, and they interact. And, and it's clear that, that she's not really quite picking up what he's putting down. Uh, he's talking about uh, something more than water, and she just keeps thinking he's talking about water. Um, and he's talking about something way deeper than that. And we see this over and over with Jesus, where he talks about something that makes sense in earthly terms, but he's actually talking about a very deep spiritual principle and something that, 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 that we may need to sp- spend some time looking at and considering on a deeper level. That we can often, and we see it throughout Scripture that it happens, that, that even the disciples sometimes were like, okay, Jesus, tell us what you were really talking about there because we didn't quite understand it, right? But he's talking to her and about something that's really important. And he talks about how he can offer living water and eternal life. And we have this interaction with, with this woman. And there's this, this talk about... Uh, this, this change, this really, really kind of curve in the conversation from water to he says, go get your husband. And then there's this painful interaction where she identifies that she doesn't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you've had five. And you're currently living with a man who's not your husband. This would have been deeply disgraceful for that woman. And Jesus interacts with her in that. And then he points to worship. He talks about this change that's coming. And he points to himself as the Messiah. So just giving you a couple, two big picture ideas of what's happening here, and then I want to look at what, is Jesus, what does Jesus teach us as he interacts with this woman. So two big picture ideas uh, that John is, is building out in his gospel and his understanding of Jesus. And the first is this. Jesus is revealing himself to ever-widening circles. He's revealing himself to ever-widening circles. This is so significant that the trip through Samaria, he actually stops and he has this conversation and he actually communicates something significant about himself. So who he's revealed himself to so far? The disciples. And then there's this miracle at the wedding. Again, these are Jewish people. Then he's at the temple and he turns over the, the, the tables. This is a Jewish religious situation. It's still Jewish people. Then we have Nicodemus, this conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader, all Jews. And here he is talking to a Samaritan, a person who was considered an outcast, an outsider, who was not part of God's chosen people. And here he's talking to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered, uh, they lived in the area just north of Judea, just, and so that's why he's passing through it to get to Galilee. Uh, and so just north of there, they were considered half-breeds. They had uh, been, uh, during foreign occupation from, uh, from other lands, when they'd been conquered, these Jews had married uh, people from other lands, uh, and they were considered half-bloods, half-breeds. Now that, that's, that's significant, but more significant is that what happened in this process of this intermarrying and in these foreign occupations is they took Judaism and they combined it with these other religions, and so they had this pseudo-Judaism which is what the Jews in, 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 in Jerusalem, they could not handle. It was, you have can totally tainted the religion. You are no longer Jews. You have created something totally different. You've, you, you've created something that is so wrong and off base. Part of what they believed was they rejected the entire Old Testament except for the first five books, the, first, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Those were, their, that, those were their scriptures. They rejected everything else. So they didn't believe in the prophets, 
Interesting that she calls Jesus a prophet here, right? But they, this was part of their, their religious system. And they rejected Jerusalem as a place of worship. And they chose their area, Mount Gerizim, this mount there. That's where they worshiped. And they built their own temple. They said the temple in Jerusalem isn't the right one. This is it. And so this is, this is what's going on. There's, there's this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. And we often talk about it as tension from just the Jewish side, right? Of like, they don't want anything to do with Samaritans. But there was tension the other way too. The Samaritans were like, no, you guys have it wrong. We've got it right. You, you have, you've, you've strayed from the truth. And so there's this tension with them. But the Jews considered the Samaritans to be unclean. They would be religiously un- impure. And so to interact with them, to share a meal with them, would be tainting the Jewish believer. They would be unclean. To share a drinking vessel would have been unheard of. And so they would actually avoid this interaction. Now they would, if they traveled through, they needed to travel through, that happened, but they would very clearly stay separate and definitely not share a meal or share a place to stay. But this is, this is the people that he brings himself to. He comes to this Samaritan to indicate that he is available to all, that he loves all, and that his offer of forgiveness and eternal life is for all people, not just for the Jews. He says it came there first. It started there, but it's widening out. The second thing, the second big picture idea, is that Jesus makes a very clear and bold claim that he is the Messiah. Very clear and bold claim that he's Messiah. Throughout this conversation with this woman, it's building. In verse 14, he talks about how he could give her living water that would be like a, a bubbling stream that would, that would lead to eternal life. Eternal life, that's something that only God can offer. He's indicating that he can offer her something that will lead to eternal life. And in verse 21, he talks about a time is coming and has already begun when, when it doesn't matter where you worship God. He's signaling that his advent, his coming to earth, has changed things. And the final shift hasn't happened yet. That time's still coming. The final shift will be at his death and his resurrection. When the whole way of worship will be changed and transformed. It will no longer be about a temple and sacrifices. He will be the ultimate sacrifice who has led us into a new way of worshiping God. It's the full revelation. Those other things were temporary, and their time has, has, has come to an end. And now the new way, the, fu- the, the fulfillment of it all, is Jesus. And then in verse 26, very clear, no mixing words, he makes a statement, I am the Messiah. And if you have a Bible in front of you, those words I am, you'll notice they're capitalized. It's all caps. It's the way God described himself to Moses. He used the, the, the same word, I am. That's the way he described it. So when you see it in all caps in your Bible, it's referencing that. It's referring to that. So Jesus is telling her very clearly who he is, that he is God. And he's using it in a way that she would understand. Because remember, she rejects all the rest of the the Old Testament, but she remembers the first five books and, and studies those. So he's connecting with her from that point of this is who I am. You know who God is, and I am in front, and, and, and he's claiming to be that. So Jesus, as he's interacting with this woman, he shows us that he meets us in our shame and provides healing grace. Meets us in our shame and provides healing grace. This is what is happening with this woman who is deeply disgraced in her life and has all of this pain and all of this mess in her life. He meets her in her shame. And he doesn't meet her with judgment. He meets her with love and grace. 
So that concept of shame, I think we all have a category for it. We know the word of, we know the word ashamed. I feel ashamed. We feel embarrassed, kind of connecting there. But the shame, the concept of shame, when we look at it from an emotional and psychological perspective, when we look at it from a scriptural perspective, what we're talking about is this feeling that I am bad or unlovable. So not I did a bad thing, I am bad. Not that that someone didn't love me, but there's something wrong with me and I am unlovable. This is the concept of shame. And this woman who's had all of this, 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 these failed relationships, failed in some way or another, she is clearly in a place of shame. She comes at midday to get the water. I told you that was significant. At this time period, women were the ones who would get the water. This was the duty of the women. And they would go together with other women in the morning. It was a social thing. They did it in the morning to avoid the heat of the day and because they need water to get the day started, that kind of thing. They may have made other trips during the day, but they would rarely do it at the middle of the day. But they would go together. It became a social thing, a way, a way to connect with one another and be together, to form relationship and bonding. And this woman comes alone in the middle of the day. When we hear about the husband situation, we start to connect the dots that this is a woman who's, who's embarrassed, who's ashamed, who's an outcast. Not only is she an outcast as a Samaritan, according to the Jews, as a Samaritan, she's an outcast as a woman who's had all of this pain in her life and all of these failed relationships. This woman comes in the middle of the day. She has multiple marriages, a sign of disgrace in the society. Now, if we look at the five husband situation, now, some of them may have died of natural causes. That's very possible. But very hard to believe that all five of them would have died from natural causes. So likely, there is some kind of rejection here and some kind of wound in her life that she's unlovable, that she wasn't enough in some way. Or perhaps she was unfaithful and was divorced for that. She carries the shame of that. We don't know. We're not certain. But what it is certain is that this is a woman in a lot of pain. And she's currently living with a man who she's not married to. Perhaps she gave up on the whole idea and said, I'm not going to have that pain again. And now she's living with a man who's not even her husband. This would have been an even greater source of shame in this culture. And so she's avoiding being with these other women. And Jesus meets her in that place. And when he interacts with her, she does what I call the shame dance. The shame dance. First, with the shame dance, this is something we, we do. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in our own, I, I think, I, I see it in my life. I, I, I see it in other people's lives. And we see it in this woman's life. The first thing, when we experience shame, there's something that we're embarrassed of or something that we feel that, that we are bad or unlovable in some way. What we do with shame is we hide it. We hide. You think of the, the, the emotional response to shame is we, we kind of hide our eyes or avert. We don't look at somebody in the eye. We think of a dog hiding its tail between its leg and it's cowering, right? It's ashamed. It knows it's in trouble. It knows it's done something wrong. And so we hide. And we hear this woman hide, hide the truth. She says, I don't have a husband. That's truthful. Yeah, she spoke truth, but it's also not the full truth. She's not giving the full truth. She's kind of concealing in some way. We see this with Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden when they sin. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They, hide, they recognize they're naked. They felt ashamed. And they hid. They hid. And so God's walking in the garden saying, where are you? And they say, we were naked and we felt afraid and so we hid. God says, who told you you were naked, right? What happened here? And, and he understands that they, they hid because they were ashamed. We hide when we experience it. And sometimes we get so good at hiding it that we even hide it from ourselves and we forget that it's there. We bury it down deep and we don't 
remember it anymore. We, have, we hide. <clears throat> and, and when we get good at hiding it, we avoid it altogether. We find ways to position our life so we don't have the reminders of it. You know, maybe we, 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 we avoid certain people. This woman's avoiding people by not going with the other women of the village, right? Or maybe we avoid certain topics, or, or we even remove pictures from, our, from, from memories and that kind of stuff. We avoid it in some way. So we hide it, we avoid it, and then when it comes up, when these strategies fail us somehow and it comes up, we pivot. We avoid it in another way. We shift to a different topic. And we change the subject. That's what the woman does here. Jesus says, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with is not your, your husband. And what does she say? Instead of talking to him about that issue, she says, well, certainly you're a prophet. Let me ask you a theological question. She avoids her pain. She pivots to a new topic. And we do this when something hits close to home, and we feel that shame, and we can't avoid it. We pivot or we redirect or we go somewhere else. Sometimes the way we pivot is to blame somebody else and point the finger at them because it gets the focus off of us. This is the shame dance. Maybe you can think of ways that you've built strategies into your life to avoid your shame rather than allow God to enter into that and heal you from it, to bring the healing of the deep wounded parts of your heart. Maybe you feel alone in the world, and so you think that a relationship or a marriage, that that will make you feel complete. But then you get into that relationship, and you realize it doesn't, that there's still a hole in your heart. Or maybe you feel unimportant in the world, and you think if you could just land the right job, or if I could get that promotion, then I'll feel validated. But when you get that job or that promotion, you still feel this unimportant part of this hole is still in your heart. Or maybe you question your value and your work, your worth, and you think, if I just accomplished more, if I set in this goal and I, go, and I accomplish that goal, once I reach that milestone, then I will feel valuable and worthwhile. But those achievements come and you still feel empty because none of these things can satisfy only God can satisfy the deep longings of our heart. Jeremiah 2.13 talks about this. It says, For my people have done two evil things. This is God talking here. People have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. That's one. They've abandoned me. He's the fountain of living water. And then this is the second thing. They have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. So they've abandoned the one who could truly satisfy and give them what they're looking for. And instead, they've dug these, these containers to hold water that actually are cracked and they can't even hold the water. This is a picture of what we do to avoid our shame, the pain in our lives. We try to be self-sufficient and take care of it ourselves, but we cannot do it. And nothing we try to fill that hole with does it. Only God can do it. We all have cracked cisterns in our lives. There's broken parts of our lives that we are trying to heal. And God wants us to turn to him for that healing. And Jesus does it for this woman in this passage. First step is to recognize those patterns, to recognize the hiding, avoiding, the pivoting, the things that I'm doing to find that, to try to fill that hole. The first step is to do that. The second step is to turn to God and invite him to heal those deep places of your heart. So Jesus... 
He meets us in our shame and provides healing grace, and he also cleanses us, body, mind, and soul. This is how he can step into our shame, because he offers us what can cleanse us from all of that, what can renew us. He says to this woman that he can offer living water. Living water, that's an interesting phrase. It's not something we typically use. The concept here of living water means like moving water, not stagnant still, but water that's flowing and moving. Uh, and that's, that's significant. Uh, but this is, this is, he's taking it even a level higher to talking about a spiritual principle here of, of not just actual physical water, but this, this eternal life that he's going to offer, this healing power that he has. But the concept of living water was so significant to the Jews of this time period uh, because living water, moving water, was the only thing that could truly cleanse someone if they were ritually impure, unclean. So if they had, they had you know, uh, broken some of the purity laws or if they were preparing to go into the temple to do sacri- a sacrifice, there needed to be a cleansing process. And only living water could do that. And so this water he's talking about is cleansing water. It's cleansing water and the spiritual principle of, of, of eternal life that he's offering. So John has been building out water throughout his gospel here. In the first chapter, he talks to us about John's baptism. He's dunking people in the water. He's, they're, they're, he's calling them to repent. There's a cleansing that's happening here as, he cha- as, as hearts are turned to God and prepare for the Messiah. In chapter 2, we had the story of turning water into wine. And if you remember that story, the, the, the containers that Jesus used were vessels that were used for ritual cleansing, for ceremonial washing. Again, there's a cleansing principle here. In chapter 3, we had the Nic- interaction with Nicodemus, a religious leader, and he says this thing. He says about how you have to be born of water water and of the spirit. You have to be born again of water and of spirit. And so there's this cleansing idea of water here again. And so John is building out here that Jesus is, that they've had this, these cleansing laws, these purity laws, and he's saying Jesus is the one who does this for you. He is the one who cleanses you body, mind, and soul. This Samaritan was considered unclean, as I mentioned. To drink from the same vessel as a Samaritan would mean that the Jew was unclean. But Jesus isn't isn't concerned about that. That's why the woman's surprised. She's like, wait a minute, that's going to be problems for you, buddy. Not only are we not friends like like Samaritan and Jew, but like if you drink from this vessel, it's going to cause you to be unclean. Don't you know that? But Jesus isn't concerned of it because he is the source that can cleanse all unrighteousness. This is a concept that gets built out in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 says, Some of you once were like that. Talking about patterns of sin and, and, and a list of sins. It says, some of you were once like that. But there's a difference now. There's a change. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So you were like that. But a change has happened. And the change has happened because of the power of Jesus that has cleansed you from your sin. So no matter where you are, what you've done, where you're currently at right now, Jesus has the power to break those chains and to free you from your sin. And he does this this amazing thing. He trades us. He takes our sin and shame and he gives us his righteousness. I I think we got the better deal out of that one. He trades us our sin and shame for his righteousness. This is what he does for us and how he cleanses us. In 2 Corinthians, it says that, that, that we are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're raised to a new life of following God. And in 1 John 1, 1.9, it says, But if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. 
the reason we don't have to hide in our shame is because God is willing to meet us in it. And he's willing to meet us with faithfulness and justice to forgive our sins and to cleanse us. He wants us to bring it to him so that he can bring us out of it and back on to a righteous path, a path dedicated to him. And so Jesus offers this woman living water that cleanses and that leads to eternal life, and he offers it to each of us as well. And this, the, the other part of this interaction with her that I see is that Jesus leads us to holistic worship. He leads us to holistic worship. So John has again been building this concept out in his gospel as well. He's showing that Jesus shows us a better way, a way of true worship. The old way of doing things has coming to an end. The, the temple and the sacrificial system and the law, all of these things are coming to an end. They were temporary. They were only ever temporary to point to Jesus and God's ultimate revelation. And Jesus is saying, those placeholders, they were placeholders, they're done, and now he's going to show us the new way, the true way of, of worshiping God. And it's the way that it should have always been, but this is now the fulfillment of all that God was planning. And when Jesus was asked about what it is to worship God, he says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you get the, the pervasiveness of this? The whole life? It's not a set of rituals. It's not a set of external actions. It's a whole life that is committed to God. It's a matter of the heart, but it's not just a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart combined with truth. He says that we're to worship in spirit and in truth. That the heart matters but that the truth matters as well. And when we get these two concepts out of balance, if we're all spirit and no truth, it leads to misguided religion. If our, if our emotions and our heart and, our, and our, kind of our intuition, we just do what we feel is right, if we just go with that, we can easily get off track. And we can, we can miss the point and we can be in a way, be doing things and saying things that totally are not in line with what God wants. Our heart matters, but it's not the only thing that matters. It is possible to be sincere and to be sincerely wrong. I am guilty of that more times than I care to admit. It is possible to be sincere, to just be from the heart, but also to be really wrong. And so we need our heart to be engaged, but we also need the truth to balance it out. And so we hold these two together in balance. Now go the other way. If you're all truth and no spirit, you end up with a disembodied religion. If we're all facts and truth and rules and regulations, we're living from the neck up and we're not engaging our heart. And so we're disconnected from our emotions. We're disconnected from one another and from God on an emotional heart level. And this can easily degenerate into legalism, you know, just becoming a set of rules to follow. Jesus saw that in his time period with the religious leaders, and he had some pretty harsh words for them. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Everything looks good on the outside. You've got all these rules you follow, and you're like, look at, how, look at how religious I am. But what's going on on the inside? He said, you're like dead men. You have dead, a tomb. It's full of dead men's bones. So it looks good on the outside, but inside's rotten. And so we have to hold these in balance. Spirit and truth, they have to be in balance. And what Jesus is communicating to this woman is that, that, that true worship, 
it's not only in spirit and truth, but it's not tied to a location, but rather a person. It doesn't matter if it's on this place or in this mountain or that mountain, in this building or that building. It doesn't matter where it is. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. Worship, true worship is connected to him. It's through him. And so as we look at this interaction of Jesus with this woman at the well, I'm reminded of a concept from the Old Testament, a concept that you have sung about this morning and, and heard from Psalm, uh, the Psalm that we were, 103 that we were looking at. This concept is represented in Exodus 34, 6. This is God talking about himself. He says, Yahweh, speaking of him, saying his name, is Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So God describing himself, he says that he's compassionate and merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's got full of unfailing love, and that he's faithful. This concept that's represented here, this concept that we've sung about and that, I, that, that Psalm 103 re- referenced, is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. And it's, it's a word that carries so much meaning and, and is so powerful. Our English, in English, we have to use like a whole bunch of words to describe it. But here's the concept. Simply translated, it's loving kindness. Loving kindness. But, more, but what that means more, more, uh, more fully is committed and faithful love. Committed and faithful love, but not just I feel committed, I am committed and I feel I'm faithful and I love. Not just that, I act on behalf of the other. It is committed, faithful love that takes action on behalf of someone in need. And this is the character of God. 250 times throughout the Old Testament, this concept is put out. And we see it with Jesus with this woman, that he meets her in her need. That he's faithful and compassionate to her. And that he acts on her behalf. This is the love that God has for us. It's why we can come to him with our shame and with our sin. Because he loves us dearly and he is committed to us and he is ready to act on our behalf. And so here's here's what I'd like to leave you with. Jesus' loving kindness is what your soul thirsts for. The hesed of God, Jesus' loving kindness, is what your soul is thirsting for. And Jesus positioned himself as an unavoidable obstacle in the life of this woman, sitting at the well. Can't avoid him. And I believe that he's positioning himself as an unavoidable obstacle in each of our lives so that he can meet us in our pain and bring the healing grace that he wants to offer. May we be people who find our healing in Jesus and help others find that their soul longs for him as well.